God, his spirit, which is represented by water, can cleanse even the dirtiest heart. Cleanse us from within, cleanse us inside and out. This is season 11 of Guerrilla Christianity. My name is Pastor Brent Walker, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Guerrilla Christianity, an unconventional, no apologies exposition of God's grace from an Orthodox Wesleyan point of view. God's holy word is essential to our teaching, so let's get into God's word right now. And I would invite you also to uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to Psalm 51. It's right about in the middle of the Bible. Uh, that's where the Psalms are. If you turn straight to the middle, you should probably find Psalm 117. Make a left-hand turn, you'll get to Psalm 51. I didn't write the page number. That's, what's that? 545. Perfect. Page 545 of the Old Testament. Well, we are beginning a new series for the season of Lent called Draw Near to God. The Psalms are considered wisdom literature and poetry. In reality, they are songs of praise, lament, prayers of intercession and supplication. Throughout the season of Lent, we will be looking at the Psalms and what they say about the relationship of the psalmist to God. And all this is meant to bring us to a closer relationship with God that we may draw near to Him and give Him all glory, honor, and praise as we follow Jesus to the cross of Calvary. We read this responsively, but let's read it again. Psalm 51. Have mercy, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom." Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall shew forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would, would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
O Lord, you are the author of all knowledge and wisdom, and so we draw near to you in this moment that we may learn from you by your holy word. Your word is your very breath given to men that we may know your heart and draw near to you. Speak to us in the stillness of our spirits. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as I said, throughout the season of Lent, we will be in the book of Psalms. And so I thought it would be uh, fitting to do a brief introduction of the book of Psalms. Psalms is an interesting book because it's often included, if you ever see just the New Testament, a lot of times you'll also see the New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. Why do they include this book? Why do they include the Psalms? Why do they include the Proverbs? Well, they are wisdom literature. And the Psalms themselves, this is the hymn book of the Jewish people. We have our own hymn book. We've got several hundred hymns. We have liturgical uh, readings. We have prayers. And we have, um, we have orders of service that are in the hymn book. Their hymn book was all songs and songs that were praise, songs that were prayers. The word psalm itself comes from the Greek title, which is psalmos, and it comes from the Greek word, which means to play with a stringed instrument. And so it's assumed that most of these or all of these songs were meant to be accompanied by musical instruments. Now, the Hebrew title of the book is Tehillim, which means praises. The entire book is considered by the Jews to be a book of praises. But the book itself is not even one book. It's the longest book in the Bible with 150 chapters, if you will, each psalm being one chapter. The 150 Psalms that comprise the book of Psalms are broken down into five books. Now, why? I don't know. Probably because of scroll length. It made it easier to choose Psalms. Perhaps they chose one Psalm to read and sing from each scroll, and thus they would have five to sing for that week. I don't know. That's just speculation. But most of the Psalms, all of the Psalms were written between the time of Moses. Uh, Moses composed the oldest of the Psalms, which was Psalm 90. And, the, and it went all the way up to after the exile. So sometime from the 15th century BC to the 6th century B.C., about 900 years. Now, that seems like a long time, but, but it's funny. If you look in your own hymnal, you'll see that there are hymns in there from the 12th century, well over a 1,000 years ago. Um, and so we, we know that there are old songs of praise, not to mention the fact that our hymnals also include the Psalms as well. So that's another fifth, you know, a thousand years of history. 
We're talking about 3,500 years of people singing songs of praise to God. Most of these are written by David. There are 73 that are attributed to him. But the other authors include Moses himself, Solomon, the sons of Korah, Asaph, and a man named Ethan the Ezraite, who wrote Psalm 89. Now, the content of the Psalms, um, there are six distinct types. First, you have hymns. We have hymns. Our hymns are songs of praise. And so their psalms, which are considered to be hymns, are songs of praise in times of prosperity. They also have laments. Laments are songs of sorrow in times of trouble, and they usually have an element of confession to them as well. There are songs of thanksgiving, which point to the past of what God has done and to what God is doing now in the present. Songs of thanksgiving. Confidence or trust songs. In times of trouble, faith that God will deliver them from their present woes. There are songs of kingship, songs that point to the reign of God and his anointed one or the Messiah. Not to speak of the present king on the throne of Israel. And then, of course, there are wisdom songs, songs that guide the congregation in the ways of God. Now, the psalm before us, Psalm 51, is a psalm of penitence, which is a type of lament. It was written by David in response to the events surrounding 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And so let me talk a little bit about that, a little context. David sent his armies out in the spring, we are told, when kings would normally go out to war. But he stayed home. That was his first mistake. His second mistake was he was walking around the, the parapet of his castle, or the roof, and looking down and he saw a woman bathing herself. Now, just seeing her, that's not, I mean, anybody could see that. But he lingered. He looked. He kept looking. <laughs> and that was the second mistake. Then he sent down someone and, and said, inquire about that woman down there. Who is she? And somebody said to her, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah was one of David's uh, 30 mighty men. So David knew who Uriah was. He ought to have known who the wife of Uriah was, but then he made his third mistake. He sent down for her. She came up to him. They laid together. She conceived. Now he's in trouble. Oops, we committed adultery, and the sin will be find out, found out because her husband's off at war, and she got pregnant. It's like, you know, the soldier returning from Vietnam to find out he has a two-year-old kid, you know. But he's been there for three years. <laughs> um, well, what does he do? He tries to cover it up the best way that he can. He knows he made a mistake. He, 
he invites Uriah back from the front, and he asks him, how's it going? How's the battle going? Oh, it's going well. That's great. Hey, uh, why don't you uh, go down to your house and, you know, spend time with your wife while you're here? He's trying to entice Uriah to go down and, and sleep with his wife so that she can conceive and think that the baby is his, but he doesn't go down. He doesn't go down. The next day when David asked him, why didn't you go down to your house? He says, why should I go to my house when the men are out in the battle? He said, the ark of the Lord is in a tent on the front lines. Well, how can I possibly go down to be with my wife? So David says, hey, why don't you hang out here one more day and then I'll send you home tomorrow or send you back to the front tomorrow. And he gets him drunk because that's going to work. But he doesn't go down to his house. He doesn't take the bait. And the next day, David writes a letter to his general, Joab, and says in the letter, put Uriah in the front of some of the thickest fighting and then withdraw your men so that he is killed. And he puts it in the hand of Uriah and says, deliver this to Joab. He gives him his own death warrant. Well, Uriah goes back. He's a good and faithful soldier. He does not look at the message. He gives it to Joab. Joab does what David asks him and sends word back to David. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, grieves the death of her husband. And then David marries her. Sin's been taken care of. It's covered up. It's all good now, right? But then we read one line, one half of a verse at the very end of the 11th chapter. The thing which David did displeased the Lord. Because we can cover our sin from people, but God knows what we do. Nathan the prophet comes, sent from God, and he tells David a story. He says, um, I have a problem. There's a, there's a rich man. He's got many flocks, many herds. He's got anything that he needs. And right next door to him, there's a poor man. And all that poor man has in all the world is one little ewe lamb. And that ewe lamb is not even, you know, it's not even so much a farm animal. It's like a member of his own family. It eats at his table. They feed him the scraps. He loves that little ewe lamb. And so when a visitor came to visit the rich man, the rich man didn't take from his herds. He took the, the poor man's ewe lamb and slaughtered it and took it and fed it to his visitor. David was incensed, outraged. Oh, how can this be? Oh, we can get angry at somebody else's sin, can't we? How this man should be put to death. And not only that, but then he should also pay back four times what he took. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You have many wives and you had to take the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And if that wasn't enough, then you had him killed for it. And God knows what you did. 
and you are cut off. Then we read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And this seems so minor compared to what he's already done. Think about the mountain of sin he has, has, has built up against God. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. Oof, just like that. He confessed his sin. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. In other words, the child that was born of this unholy union died, grew sick, and died. Now, that's not the end. Uh, David and Bathsheba have another son, and his name is Solomon. You might have heard of him. Solomon, whose name means peace, became the wisest man in all the world, the richest man in all the world, and the last of the really good kings of Israel. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam was very foolish and ended up um, driving the northern ten tribes away so that the kingdom was split. But you say to yourself, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And God said, okay, you're forgiven. It doesn't seem like enough. Well, that's not all he said. It's not all he said. David's sin, David's uh, lament of confession and pleading for forgiveness can be found in Psalm 51. In fact, there's a superscription to the psalm, and the superscription is part of the text. It's not added there by the translators as like a title of the section. It's part of the Hebrew text. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So that lays for us the context of when this psalm and why this psalm was written. And now with all that background, let's read it again. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. David prays for the grace, the unmerited favor of God, and appeals to his mercy, mercy and compassion. And what we're seeing in these first nine verses is David's need for reconciliation. Reconciliation to God. He separated himself from God by his sin. And so he's praying for reconciliation to God. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Because physical washing doesn't remove the stain of sin, but spiritual washing is what is needed. He needs his spirit cleansed. He needs a spirit washed. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David confesses his sin 
in a general way, but he is referring specifically to this sin that he committed with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Verse 4, Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Now, Uriah might have something to say about this verse. Uriah is probably like, yeah, I feel like you sinned against me too, David. But David says, against thee, thee only. Why? Because all sin, no matter who we sin against, is ultimately sin against God. And so God is justified in punishing wrongdoers. Verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David recognizes his fallen state since birth, the sin that he has inherited from Adam's line. And verse 6, purge, uh, verse six. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. God is intimate with us. He knows us inside and out. He knows our thought life, and thus we cannot hide our sin from him. Numbers 32 and 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was used by the Levitical priests to purify the sanctuary and the tabernacle. David is appealing to God to cleanse him because he knows that God's spirit will cleanse him thoroughly. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And how is this accomplished? Ezekiel chapter 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So God, His Spirit, which is represented by water, can cleanse even the dirtiest heart. Cleanse us from within. Cleanse us inside and out. Verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. David's prayer is one of restoration to his former state. When God justifies us, it's just as if we'd never sinned. But this is a change of standing, not a negation of reality. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't remove the sin from us. We've done the sin. We can't change the past. But instead, God separates that sin from us and forgives us. And how? We'll get into that in a minute. But Jeremiah chapter 31, when he speaks of a new covenant, he says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on, and on their heart I will write it. On their heart I will write my law. In other words, he's not going to write it on tablets of stone. He's going to write it on the hearts of his people so that they will know his law. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's talking about Restoration. Restoration. 
Jeremiah wrote those words when the nation had been exiled into Babylon. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. A blotter is something we don't use a whole lot anymore. But used to be when you, when you would write with a, a fountain pen and the ink was still wet, you could take the blotter which would soak up the ink and, and get rid of some of it. Of course, there was still a stain. God can blot out the sin completely as if it had never happened. Reconciliation comes when God turns away from the iniquity of David and forgets, forgets his sin. Can God forget? God cannot forget, but he will, he wills not to remember. Jeremiah 31, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, get this, their sin I will remember no more. He chooses not to remember the sin. A lot of times when somebody does something wrong to us, we bring it up later on. Oh, remember five years ago when you did that? I still remember. God says, I remember your sin no more. I remember your sin no more. It's as if it had never happened. Never happened. That's what God's forgiveness looks like. And now in verse 10, we start to see the need. We've seen the need for reconciliation. Now we're seeing the need for transformation. The need for transformation. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God who makes us in his image can transform us into that image from our fallen state. Ezekiel 36 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Listen to what he says. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So that's transformation. Taking something and turning it around. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's completely different, completely transformed. So there's a need for transformation. Verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Sin separates us from God, but by his grace and mercy, he pardons our sin, and he remains our covenant God. Isaiah 63 says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Sin separates us from God. But he says, cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Understand that when God extends salvation, he extends it for good, forever. How do I say that? Jesus said, they cannot take them from my hand, those that you have given to me, speaking to the Father. When we are given to God, when we belong to God, he does not allow us to leave. He does not allow us to go. We are his forever. 
And so he's not saying, save me. He's saying, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. The joy of thy salvation. Restore to me the joy. I don't have any joy in thy salvation right now because I have grieved you. Restore it to me and uphold me with thy free spirit. Transformation brings restoration. The spirit that dwells in us sustains us. Verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. When we are reconciled to God and transformed by his spirit in us, our right response is to desire to bring others to repentance and faith so that they may experience God's grace for themselves. Ultimately, bringing sinners to repentance brings glory to God because it demonstrates his mercy and love. Verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Deliverance from sin is the ultimate goal for our, of our salvation. Not merely deliverance from the consequence of sin, but full freedom from slavery to sin, because that's what God did for the people of Israel. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and brought them into the promised land. And so for the, that's a picture of us, what he does for us. He brings us through the waters of baptism and he delivers us into freedom, a promised land. He delivers us from sin and brings us to himself. Verse 15. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall shew forth thy praise. Now that David has been reconciled to God and transformed by his grace, his right response is to praise God. In verse 16, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. Now God gave to the Israelites the sacrifice for atonement of sin, which was a constant and ongoing daily sacrifice. But God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. And that's what we see in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In Micah 6 and verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God desires obedience and not sacrifice. In verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. True repentance is not mere sorrow over our sins and their consequence, but is a genuine grief over the brokenness of the relationship between us and God. Repentance is a desire to walk with God and a forsaking of sin so that we may continue to walk with him. 
So in this song of repentance, we see deep into the heart of David a need to be reconciled to God and a need to be transformed by his spirit. This is the repentance that we bring to God today. We have sinned against the holy God, the very God who made us in his image, who loves us and sustains us by his providence. We may try to justify our sin by saying we have hurt no one by it. This is a lie. We have hurt ourselves and we have grieved God in our sin. God is gracious and merciful, abundant in love, but he is also a God of justice. And so in this Lenten season, may we never take our eyes off of the cross of Jesus Christ because that is where God poured out his wrath for your sin onto his own beloved son, for my sin and for yours. Today, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In this season of Lent, let us hold fast to the promises of God and draw near to him. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you, the just judge of all creation. We come seeking reconciliation for the separation we have caused in our sin. We come seeking transformation by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Your Spirit lives and moves within us that we may be remade in the image of your dear Son, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Draw us near to you that we would worship you in this place and tell others of your great mercy and love all to your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope that this teaching has blessed you as much as it has blessed me putting this message together. God has also blessed me by calling me to serve two churches in Salem County, New Jersey, Ebenezer United Methodist Church in Auburn and Hudson United Methodist Church in Pedertown. If you live in the area and don't have a church to call your own, I'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings for a Bible-based and God-honoring worship. Ebenezer meets for worship at 9 a.m. and Hudson meets for worship at 10.30. We also have Sunday school available and Bible study during the week. Now this podcast is self-funded and we never ask for donations. It reaches people all around the world, but it could reach more people if you do a couple of things and it won't cost you a penny. First, subscribe to the podcast and our YouTube channel. Leave a comment and also like the podcast. That puts the podcast in front of more people so that the gospel may reach them as well. Keep learning, keep growing, and I pray you will listen to Guerrilla Christianity again. Until next time, remember this, Christ died for you. Now go live for Christ.